Well, if you would open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I am thrilled to be preaching this passage this morning. I trust you'll agree with me when we, when we read it. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. And let's remember as we read that this is God's word. It is not entertainment. It is authority. It is not merely interesting. It is transforming. And it is not merely a book. It is a book from God. In this book, we encounter the Lord himself. So let's read it with that expectation, shall we, this morning? 1 Peter 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word. What would you think is the greatest building project in all of history? If you were in charge of rating that for Wikipedia, the greatest building project in all of history, what would you say? How would you evaluate greatness as building projects go? Now, surely, surely any list would have to include endurance, and so you have to include the pyramids in your final evaluation. You have to think about cost. Uh, the Majid al-Haram in, in Mecca is said to have cost now in today's dollars $100 billion, by far the, the most expensive building in history. Perhaps you'd evaluate uh, what the building is meant to contain. So you might think about the Louvre in Paris or the Metropolitan Museum in New York containing priceless art treasures of history. Or, or perhaps... Perhaps you're just a physical dimensions kind of person. Maybe you think in terms of height. There is a building planned to be completed this year called the Kingdom Tower in Saudi Arabia. I was reading about it. Uh, it is planned to reach 3,300 feet in the air. <laughs> That's over 1,000 meters if you prefer metric. That, that, that is high, okay? <laughs> that is in the air. Now, in addition... To being impressive, I imagine that all of those buildings have something in common. I imagine that none of us had anything to do with any of them. I'd be willing to bet that there's not a single person in here who had anything to do 
with a single one of those buildings or any number of other buildings who might make the list of greatest building projects in history. But I know a building project more impressive than any of them. It is purchased at a greater cost. It contains greater value. It reaches to heaven itself. And a part of that building project is sitting right in front of me. It is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the temple of the living God. It is the place of his dwelling on earth. It is that place purchased by his blood, scattered throughout the globe and throughout every generation. This is by far the greatest building project in history. It is the project of God himself. God is the architect, and Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And those two facts make it far greater than any man-made edifice on this earth. And you, Christian, are called to be a part of that church. You are called to be a part of that church, not merely to attend it, not merely to observe it, not merely to witness it, but to be a part of that church. You, Christian, have been included in this building project. God has chosen you to participate in his great temple. Now, Peter's point in this passage is to exiles. It's to Christians who feel weak and vulnerable, who are tempted to be overwhelmed by the physical and political power structures of their day, the social power structures of their day. And when they look at themselves, they feel like a flimsy treehouse in the backyard. And Peter wants to remind them, no, quite the contrary. You are actually the greatest building, the greatest structure in the world. He wants to reverse their perception, and I think God wants to reverse our perception as well. He wants us to understand the privilege, the value, the honor of being the church of Christ in a world that rejects Christ. And if I was going to lay a claim on us from this passage, that would be the claim. We need to appreciate the honor of being the church of Christ in a world that rejects Christ. We're realizing that this is God's building project. This is his holy edifice, priceless, towering to the heavens, worth more than its weight in gold. Now, this passage breaks into two main sections. We might call them the living temple of God and the divided response towards Jesus Christ. The living temple of, of Christ, rather. The living temple of Christ and the divided response to Jesus Christ. Let's walk through this and let's, let's allow the honor of being a part of this building project to affect us. Let, let's let it shape us. We are all tempted to be impressed by the structures of this age. And we need to have our perspective realigned. That's what this passage is intended to do. Let's begin with this first section, the living temple of Jesus Christ. Peter begins in verse 4 
by describing what the Christian life is. It is coming to Jesus. As you come to him, it's not describing just our conversion moment, but a continual reality of the Christian life. You are coming to him. He describes Jesus in a metaphor as a living stone. He is a living stone. He's going to build on that metaphor throughout the passage. Jesus as the rock of our salvation, the one that is secure and steady and certain. And in this case, he is a a living stone. And you notice his life is transferred to his people because we also become living stones. So the life of Christ is transmitted to those who believe in him. And this takes place in a world that has rejected the living stone. So this living stone is rejected by men, more on that later in the passage, rejected by men, but in reality, in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. So Peter sets up a paradox right from the beginning. This stone that mankind has rejected as worthless is in God's sight chosen and precious. So right from the beginning, as he's speaking to the exiles who themselves probably feel rejected by men, he is reminding them that that is also true of their Savior, that he was rejected by men, but reality would say, God says he is chosen. He is a precious stone. So this is the Christian life, and this is often how we are most comfortable talking about the Christian life. We come to Christ. You might describe the whole Christian life that way. It's coming to the Lord Jesus ongoingly. It's it's abiding in him. To use John's metaphor, it is being in the vine. That is what the Christian life is. But, But then Peter says something that perhaps we are less familiar with, and especially in our independent Western culture, often less comfortable with, that as The individual believers come to Christ. God is doing something with them. God has a plan for them beyond their individual coming to the Lord Jesus. Let's follow the logic of the passage. As you come to him, there it is, our Christian life, coming to the Lord Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is a living stone. He's rejected by men, but he's chosen and precious in the sight of God. And here is what God is doing as you come to Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are not just individual branches in a vine, as John might say, there is something more that God is doing. You are being built together into some kind of house. You are called to be connected, used in a corporate identity for something more and beyond your individual identity. You are built as living stones into a spiritual house. So don't think this is a physical house. This is not a human pyramid of Christianity, okay? This is obviously a metaphor. It is a spiritual house, but you're being built together, it says, like living stones into a spiritual house. What kind of house, we might ask Peter? What kind of house is this house? Well, Peter goes on and he changes the metaphor so that the nature of this house becomes very clear. It's a spiritual house and you are not just living stones, you are a holy priesthood called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now the image is irrefutable. 
What is this house? It is God's house. What is this structure? It is a temple. Priests do not minister in a mere house. They minister in a temple. Peter is drawing on the Old Testament imagery of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in Jerusalem, and he is saying, God is building you into a new spiritual temple, and you are the stones in the building, and you are also the priests offering sacrifices. You, you people of God, Christians who come to Jesus, you are the new temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the dwelling place of God. You are those who offer sacrifices. You are those who have access to the presence of God. You are those that are God's, God's witnessed dwelling place on the earth. You exile, living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, you that feel scattered and lonely and isolated and weak, you little treehouse church, you, you are the greatest structure in the world. You are the temple of the living God. You are not just exiles, you are priests given privileged access to God, called and consecrated to the Lord, called and devoted to Him exclusively. Now this is all the more profound because Peter is writing this while the Jerusalem temple still stands. It would be destroyed in A.D. 70. This is probably written in the mid-60s A.D., And so he's writing this when the temple still stands, and so he's making this profound theological point. God is building a new temple that will replace the old. This new temple has a new priesthood, no longer limited to the children of Aaron or the tribe of Levi. It will extend to every brother and sister who has come to Jesus Christ. All of them are no longer outside this tabernacle. They are called into this tabernacle. They are called to be the ones who handle the holy things, who approach the Holy One, who are allowed to be in the holy place. So that in the wilderness, when the cloud representing God's presence descended, or in the temple when God's glory was so overpowering the people couldn't bear to draw near. In, in those moments, Peter is, Peter is telling them, that's what happens now in the gathering of God's people. That's what happens now among the new temple made of Christians. Now, this is profound. The temple was the place where God dwelt with his people, and God is building this temple, this new temple in Christ that is his church. It's built on the stone, the cornerstone, as he'll describe it in a moment. The cornerstone was this this stone set in the extreme edge of the building that aligned the walls. All the walls were lined up by that stone. It was the the marker, the defining point of everything else. And so he's saying this, this temple has a new defining point, and it is Jesus Christ, and those who come to him are added into his new temple, the new temple defined by him. It is the temple of Christ, and to be a Christian is to be in the Christian temple. God is building his new temple, made of those who are united to Christ by faith. Christians, a community of Christians that have been granted the status and access of priests 
every one of them drawing near to the Lord to offer sacrifices of worship, and God is building his church in them. Now, I fear that this glory of God's church is sometimes obscured in the hyper-individualism of Western Christianity. I fear that the glory of the church is sometimes obscured in the hyper-individualism. Now, there is individualism. We are individuals. We come to Christ individually. You are not saved by coming to the church. You are saved, and therefore, you come to the church. But there is a hyper-individualism that would view Christianity as primarily our individual relationship with God that is contrary to this image and the rest of the New Testament. We are brought out of the world and into Christ to be made a part of his spiritual temple, his priesthood, where we together offer sacrifices to glorify his name. And I fear there is, a, there is an obscuring at times of this corporate identity, this corporate glory. We can feel it even in the, the movements of the culture. You might imagine the culture would say, look, anybody's free to practice religion in the privacy of their own home. Well, that's fine, except my religion can't be done in the privacy of my own home alone. It must be done with others. There is a, a corporate glory that sometimes is obscured in the hyper-individualism of Western thinking that we must maintain, we must vigilantly keep the honor of being the church of Jesus Christ in a world that rejects Jesus Christ. Now, if we elevate our thinking to that of Scripture regarding this divine building project called the church, we come to several profound implications. The first is that to come to Christ is to be chosen for his church. We, we must feel the authority of the logic of the passage. Do you know what I mean by that? The, the logic of a biblical passage has authority in our thinking. It has to be how we think. So we, we align our thinking with the logic of God's thinking, because <laughs> that's the right thinking. So when God says, as you come to him, Christian, as you come to Christ, Ongoingly, not just in the one-time conversion moment, but as you come to him, what is God doing? He is building you, plural, into a temple, living stones structured together for the sake of his name. A priesthood structured together to offer sacrifices. There is a, a joining that is a part of being a Christian. That is the logic of the passage, and actually it's the logic of the New Testament. And we, we must not object that perhaps this church is meant to be merely mystical. It, it's a kind of membership that we receive that we don't do anything with. It, it's that restaurant favorite customer card that we've never visited again in 10 years, but we have it and we're ready if we ever go back. No, that's not the way the New Testament describes the church. It's meant to be an active, ongoing, functional membership. It's, it's not the individual who gets a gym membership and doesn't go for 10 years. No, that's not the kind of membership we're talking about. This is a membership that's meant to function. It's, it's part of what it means to be a Christian. A major part is to be a living stone in the temple. The entire New Testament is written to real gatherings of people called churches, or a major part of it, is written to real gatherings of people called churches, and a large portion of the commands of the New Testament are about how Christians are meant to actually love one another. 
And we might like to think it's nice to mystically love everyone around the world, but that doesn't actually feed any of them. We might think it's nice to mystically encourage other Christians around the world, but that doesn't actually encourage any of them. We're, we're called to, to literally physically be the temple in real lived out ways. The church is meant to be experienced the way it was for the first century, in real people gathering together, singing together, taking the Lord's Supper together, loving each other, supporting each other, bearing each other's burdens, being, in the metaphor of this passage, like living stones, all dependent on each other. What a brilliant metaphor. Now, no one stone is the temple. I don't know if you would imagine a, a stone being a temple. This is my temple. No one stone is, is, in that sense, God's corporate temple. Now, we are all temples of the Holy Spirit in that sense. That is true. But we are not in ourselves all that the church is meant to be. We're a stone, but we're, we're certainly not the stone, and we're certainly not the temple in and of ourselves that God intends his people to be. Spurgeon challenges us here in his typical vivid and witty way. He says, there is a brick, <laughs> a very good one. What is that brick made for? To help to build a house with. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking around on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. Until it is built into the wall, it is no good. So, you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. We can feel the, the wit and wisdom of Spurgeon bringing this passage to, to living life. We're not meant to be bricks kicking around impressed with ourselves. We're meant to be built into a wall. It, it implies a commitment, a connection, a, a mutual interdependence. The wall is strong precisely because all of the bricks in their strength together make it so. Major implication of this living temple is that to come to Christ is, is to be chosen for his church. Christian, if, if you think of Christian maturity primarily in individual categories, you need to realign yourself with the scriptures. If you think of Christian growth primarily or exclusively in individual categories, align yourself with the corporate glory of being a part of the building project of God. No, it is, it is not sufficient to merely watch church whether you're attending a given church over a long period of time or multiple churches at the same time, to merely observe and not to join or be made a part of is to fall short of, of this metaphor and the rest of the New Testament as well. Major implication. A, a second implication is that true churches are devoted to sacrificial worship. We see this emphasis here. We are priests that offer spiritual sacrifices, obviously not atoning sacrifices. Christ is the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin. So these must be sacrifices of worship, sacrifices of obedience. But they are sacrifices. They are not token gestures. They are sacrifices. That word has to mean something. Even if it doesn't mean atonement, it has to mean cost. It has to mean effort. It has to mean giving up one thing in order to give to a greater thing. 
Paul says in Romans that in view of the mercy of God, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the church is to be the one place on earth where God's glory is revealed by the worship of his people. So whether they're gathering in a a small home in China or a a large building and some other place in the world, whether they happen to be scattered during the week or they are gathered on Sunday morning to proclaim the Lord's Day, look, they they are offering sacrifices that declare the worth of the Lord of whom they are the temple. The church is not a collection of clients who attend, observe, and evaluate, but a community of worshipers who give, offer, serve, and proclaim. Let me say that again. The church is not a collection of clients who attend, observe, evaluate, but rather a community of worshipers who give, offer, serve, and proclaim. We are not sightseers to a temple. We are the stones of the temple itself. We are not an audience. We are priests with a job to offer sacrifices made perfect in our great high priest Jesus himself. We're not impressed by our sacrifices. They're only made acceptable, Peter says, through Jesus Christ. But they are made acceptable. And so we can offer them with faith and joy and passion and honor, knowing that God receives them. God receives them in perfection in his son. Third implication is that true churches are defined by Christ himself. It's as we come to him, the living stone, that we are built up. It is through him that we offer sacrifices. And as verse uh, 6 continues, he is the cornerstone of this temple, the defining stone. This is meant to communicate the centrality of Christ to his church. He is not simply a, a, a token ornamental stone. No, no. He is the defining reality of the true church. A true church is structured by and ordered according to Christ. His authority, his message, his life, his death, his resurrection. A Christless church is not a church. His word is its rule and his salvation is its glory. He is the cornerstone. And all the lines of the church are out of line if they are not lined up with him. This is how we should define churches, whether this is your home church or some other church that you attend or if you're visiting. Uh, we define churches by the manner in which they align themselves with Christ. This also means we are not defined by a political party or a social movement or a national identity or an economic position or a historical perspective more than we are defined by Christ himself. And in a an era where identifying with various movements and politics and parties and platforms is easy to do, we must remember that our, our, our cornerstone, what defines our life chiefly, is Christ himself. We can have other conversations about the, the best way for the country to be run and the best way to deal with social issues. And in some of those, the Bible has something to say. But none of those things are our cornerstone. Christ is our cornerstone, and this is especially important when we remember that there is a divided response to Christ in this world. 
That's where Peter goes first. The first section is the temple of Christ. The second is the divided response to Christ. Let's look what he says in the second half of verse 6. For, he says, it stands in Scripture. For, the reason this is true, the reason this temple is what it is, is that God has laid in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, that is Christ, will not be put to shame. And so, because God has chosen this one to be the cornerstone, the solid place, the defining place of his people, the honor, the divine honor, the eternal honor is for those who believe. So this is the the first group who respond to Christ by grace and through faith and place their lives securely on him and in him and are built into his temple and there is an honor for them and in the end they will not be put to shame because this is God's cornerstone. So from God's perspective, those who trust in his cornerstone are in exactly the right place. Those who lay up their lives according to his cornerstone are exactly what God would have them be. There is no greater honor in heaven than having spent your life on earth honoring God the Son. This first group believes and receives honor. But there is a second group for those who do not believe. Verse 7 continues. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting the Old Testament here to point out that this was God's foreordained plan. That the very one who was rejected would be the cornerstone. And we know that in the mystery of God's wisdom, it was precisely that rejection which enabled him to be the cornerstone. Because if there had not been rejection of Christ such that he went to the cross, he could not have died to save sinners and build a temple made out of them. So that in the wisdom of God, the very rejection of the builders turns into the wisdom of God to create a cornerstone that can be the cornerstone for sinners reconciled to God and turned into a holy temple. This builder's reference certainly has primary reference to the the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day who rejected him. They were the builders, so to speak, of God's dwelling place on earth, and they saw Christ, and instead of seeing his glory, they saw nothing but an obscure, as Isaiah would say, root out of dry ground who had no form or majesty that they should desire him. And they rejected him. They rejected him all the way to the cross. They rejected him all the way to scorn, wagging their heads and saying, you saved others, you cannot save yourself. Take yourself down from the cross if you are the son of God. They rejected him to the cross, they rejected him. And they believed of him that God was rejecting him. But in reality, God's rejection of him was actually the salvation of his people. Because God was rejecting their sins by rejecting the chosen Son of God. From God's perspective, Jesus was the cornerstone. And their rejection of him did not make him less valuable, but more. But because he was crucified... And the scandal of the cross and the scandal of a crucified Messiah and the scandal of a one and only mediator, it turns him into for them a stone of stumbling and a rock 
of offense. So the one who is our precious cornerstone that we adore and love and worship is in this world a stone of stumbling, and they stumble because they disobey the word, and for Peter that is the word of the gospel, which they were destined to do. So God has arranged history such that Christ is the dividing line of it. Christ is, for those who believe, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and for those who do not believe, a stumbling stone of condemnation. He is, for those who obey the word, a precious, defining cornerstone fit for the temple, and he is, for those who do not believe, who disobey the word, an offense, something to be rejected, something to be scorned, something to be belittled, something to be ignored, something to be minimized, a rock to be moved out of the way of our way of life, a stone of offense, a tripping stone is all Christ is. A tripping stone is the cornerstone. Why is Peter saying this? Well, he's saying this because these are God's people scattered throughout the Mediterranean, and they need to remember that they live in a divided world, and it is divided precisely at the point of Christ. It is not... It is not the Christ, important to hear this, listen to this, it is not the Christ of Western culture that is offensive. The Christ of Western culture is primarily a teacher uh, that talks about doing good and loving your neighbor. That, That is primarily the Christ of Western culture. That is not the Christ that is offensive. Don't be confused. The Christ that is offensive, that is a stone of offense, is the one who is the divine chosen cornerstone of God's purposes. The Christ who offends is the one who declares himself to be the way, the truth, the light, so that no one can come to God except through him. The Christ who offends is the one who commands the complete allegiance of every one of his followers, who will die to vindicate the holiness of God and to reveal the sinfulness of sin. That is the Christ who offends. This is the stumbling block. This is the the scandal of this age. This is the wisdom of God that is counted foolish by the wise people of this world. This this is the the scandal on the scandal, the curse, the offense, the abomination to this culture, that there is a, a Christ, a mighty Savior who was crushed to reveal sinfulness and holiness and to atone for sins, and that in his weakness he was shown to be the all-powerful and mighty Redeemer. This is the dividing line of humanity. And for the true church, we we need to remember this. We need to remember that our Christ, the Christ who is, the Christ as he is truly represented in Scripture, is offensive, is a stumbling block to our culture. Listen, we, we must not assume that the only reason the church of Christ and the world do not get along is because of offensive Christians. We might be tempted to think that. That if we could just get rid of offensiveness in Christians, the world and the church of Christ could get along. But that is not the case. Now, of course, Christians can be offensive, and they should not be. They can be offensive in their self-righteousness. They can be offensive in their hypocrisy. They can 
be offensive in their rudeness and look more like the world than the temple of the living God. Surely we can be offensive. But it's not as if we could instantly eliminate all the offensiveness of Christians. The world could shake hands with the temple of God. Because Christ himself is offensive in his authority, in his glory, in his claim on every man, woman, and child. He himself is offensive in his death on the cross. He himself is the stumbling block. He is the chosen cornerstone, but he offends those who would gather glory to themselves and would reject the living God. He is offensive. And we must not try to silence Christ so that he is less offensive to a sinful world than God has destined him to be. There is no partnership between Christ and the pluralistic and immoral and subjective spirit of our age. There is no partnership between Christ and Western immorality. And we must not assume that God's purpose in Christ is to appease sinners. It is not. And the church of Christ should be as inoffensive as they can be without minimizing the true nature of Christ who is offensive. Because it is only the true Christ as he is revealed to some of those in this world who will bring them to God. An inoffensive Christ is not Christ. And something that is not Christ cannot save. Something that is not Christ cannot be the cornerstone of the temple. Something that is less than Christ is a dishonor to Christ and an affront to the Father. Listen to this quote from Karen Jobes about the first century and see if you can interpret how, how pervasive this is true in every generation. In the first century Roman society of Asia Minor, did conversion to Christ raise or lower one's social status? These are rhetorical questions. Did it bring honor or shame to oneself and one's family? Apparently, Peter's readers, listen to this, were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. Such sustained social pressure resulted in undeserved suffering that could lead to despair and eventually even renunciation of the Christian faith. And so Peter reminds his readers of Isaiah's promise that whoever trusts in the cornerstone placed in Zion will in fact never be shamed and thereby reverses the basis of honor and shame in their self-understanding. Those who trust in the living cornerstone that God has placed in Zion will never be put to shame. But those who reject Christ will suffer the shameful judgment by God himself, the one who ultimately arbitrates honor and shame. Therefore, despite the shameful treatment they receive from society, Peter encourages his readers that they, not their accusers, are the ones who receive true honor by believing in Christ. Now, is it that difficult in 2020? To imagine scenarios where we could be demeaned, discredited, and shamed as social and moral deviants endangering the common good simply for believing and following Jesus. To be very practical, what about a Christian right now in California who in seeking to obey Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 decides that they need to go ahead 
and begin singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in the gathered church. I'm not saying that's what they automatically should do right now. I understand temporary suspension and all of the wisdom that might be with that in certain moments, but let's say a Christian was to decide to do that in all meekness, an honest desire to honor their Lord and obey those scriptures. Is it possible that that brother or sister in Christ could face public shame or worse, could perhaps be defined as a social deviant endangering the common good? Of course, Christians should do all, all they can to avoid being unnecessarily offensive. They are called to be reasonable. They are called to be peacemakers. They are called to do all they can to honor the authorities. They are called to live at peace as far as it depends on them with all. And yet, compliance is not our cornerstone. Christ is. So yes, we can be compliant if that really means humility, really means self-sacrifice, really means servanthood, really means being wise and seasoned with salt and all that we say and do. Yes, but Christ and not compliance is our cornerstone, and sometimes those do not agree. The stone that the builders reject, the stone that the world continues to reject, that our culture continues to reject, some nicely and some rudely, but continues to reject, is not a nice teacher with a loving message, but a divine human mediator with absolute authority and a shocking message about crucifixion in payment for sin, about a new heavens and a new earth and resurrection and a rapidly approaching end of the treasures of this age. This is the stone we build our lives upon. This is what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in a world that rejects Jesus Christ. It means building our lives on that cornerstone. And do not be deceived. If you are tempted to be merely an observer of Christianity and you do not think that God is playing for keeps, do not be deceived that eternity weighs in how we respond to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says it this, day, this way, the day is coming when the Lord will divide between those that love him and those that love him not. And every day is getting ready for that last division. This very night, the division is being made. In the preaching of the gospel, it is carried out. Let each man take his stand and ask himself the question, are you with Christ? Are you with God, with Christ, with the precious blood, or do you still rank with sinful pleasures and their delights? As you will have to answer for it when the skies are on a blaze and the earth reels and the judgment trump summons you before the great white throne. So, answer for it now. If you are a child here, answer for it now. Are you with Christ? Are you with the cornerstone? Are you a part of his temple? Are you a part of his great building project, a priesthood that offers sacrifices to his glorious name? Are you with the cross of Christ? Are you with the holiness of Christ? Are you with Christ? Are you being the church of Christ in a world that rejects Christ? Here is Peter's point, you lowly exiles, you treehouse Christians that think of yourselves as weak and vulnerable and scandalized and lowly and persecuted. You are a part of the great temple of the ages, the glory of Christ Jesus, the heavenly place of God's dwelling on earth, and you must be faithful to the one who is your cornerstone. God is building his church on Christ in a world that rejects Christ. And God has called you 
to come to Christ and in coming to be the church of Christ. To not be a do-nothing brick, assuming the Christian life is isolation and independent piety, and to neither be a compromising, professing believer, but to be a faithful stone, a faithful priest linking arms with other priests and other stones so that the great building that is God's corporate temple can resound with the glory of his name. We must be the church of Christ in a world that is rejecting Christ. We must be the temple of the Lord. We must be the priesthood of the Lamb. We must build our lives together on the rock in Christ. And as Jesus said, he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, I want to begin by thanking you for the faithful, faithful members of Redemption Hill Church. Lord, thank you that I am preaching to living stones who love being built together in this temple. We are so grateful to you for your grace at work in this community. And we want to pray, Lord for our faithfulness and the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters around this city and around this world, that in this shaking world, they would be faithful to Christ. They would be faithful to the cornerstone. They would build together and offer sacrifices to your glory. Lord, build your church by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name, on the authority of your word, united around the finished work of your death and resurrection. Build your church. In Jesus' name, we pray.